Mm. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming. I want to start with some uh, lines of poetry by Robert Creeley from 1968. I can remember reading these lines in 1968, and I've remembered them ever since. uh, I remembered two lines, uh, inside and outside, impossible uh, possibilities. Um, But recently I decided to look the lines up because I haven't gone back to the book since 1968. And I I looked it up and I misremembered the lines. All this time I've been (laughs) having a profound thought about Robert Greenlee's lines that I misremembered. So now I'm going to tell you the the actual, uh, what he actually wrote. And I'll I'll back up from from the lines I'm interested in and redo the whole thing. It's from a volume called Pieces, which was very famous and important at the time. As real as thinking, wonders created by the possibility forms a period at the end of a sentence which began, it was into a present, a presence, saying something as it goes. No forms less than activity. All words, days, or eyes, or happening, is an event only for the observer. No one there. Everyone here. And then, skipping apart, comes the lines. Inside and out. Impossible locations. Reaching in from outside, out from inside, as middle, one hand. Wonderful poem, huh? Very haunting, mysterious words, which... uh, for me then and now, uh, remind me of our practice. When you walk into uh, a room like this and you see a whole bunch of people sitting silently facing the wall, what is actually going on? It looks like everybody is sitting there absorbed in himself or herself looks like everybody has decided for that period of time to withdraw from interaction, withdraw from the world. But when you realize, you know, what's really happening, is that really what's going on? 
when you go inside, when you, when you stop all social interaction, when you stop all activity, and you just sit there with breathing and awareness, maybe you're going inside, but in a way you're also going outside too. You're leaving yourself, and you're going out uh, into the wilderness. Because presence, a simple presence, isn't really you. It's wild. You're in it, and thanks to it, you are you. But it's not you. Everything uh, is in that presence. Awareness is not inside, and it's not personal. Inside and outside. Impossible locations. And, and I think everybody here knows how important it is for us to sit, not just for a few minutes, but sometimes for a long while, maybe a whole day maybe a whole week. It seems that we need that to digest our lives. We need that in order to settle with what has happened to us. You know, you sit down, and whether you think this or not, you feel, yes, all these things really did happen. I really did live through those immense and colorful days. I really did live through uh, those joys, those delights, uh, those losses, those hopes, those fears. And how does it feel? And what, and what does it all mean? And what in the world am I going to do next? You know, it won't really do for us to go crashing on through our lives without once in a while taking the time to feel what has happened to us. I'm not talking about thinking it through and explaining it and coming up with a storyline that makes sense to us, that might be important too. But I'm talking about stepping back and actually feeling in our body and in our heart and in our mind what did happen there. Because we don't really know. Settling with your life. And as probably many of you know, some things are harder to settle with than others. Some things and spend a whole lifetime trying to settle with. Uh, our teacher here, uh, Tia Strozer, was a disciple for many years of Katagiri Roshi. I was just in her little room, and she has a picture of him in there. Oh, hi, Aaron. I didn't think you'd be here. Um, and Katagiri Roshi always said, he had this saying, that he repeated over and over again. And uh, I know it because 
one of our dear teachers and friends from San Francisco Zen Center, Blanche Hartman, now also repeats this same saying over and over again. She's been saying it herself for about 25 years now. And the more she says it, the better it gets. You know? This is like how the, the, the Zen practice methodology, you know, one phrase, just keep saying it over and over again. Eventually, it becomes very meaningful, and your whole life dissolves into it. So that happened to her. But here's the, here's the phrase, maybe you've heard this. Settle the self on the self and let the flower of your life force bloom. That you could say that sums up our practice. Settle the self on the self and let the flower of your life force bloom. All words, days, or eyes or happening is an event only for the observer no one there everyone here now I've noticed uh, over the years uh, a strange phenomenon that maybe some of you have noticed too and that is when you begin to settle inside the outside also settles it sounds a little new agey you know but, but it actually is true. You notice it especially uh, with regard to other people. When you settle your resentment, your fear, your anxiety, your anger a little bit, you have more peace inside, more equanimity inside, so you change, and you notice that you change. But you begin to notice that other people also change when that happens to you. Other people begin to behave a little bit more nicely. <laughs> troublesome people begin to become slightly less troublesome. And it turns out that as you go through life, you're meeting a few less troublesome people in the first place than you met before when you change like that inside. It's strange. <laughs> Sometimes you can notice that even inanimate objects and, and complicated, multi-caused uh, events change outside in response to your having changed inside. And it begins to dawn on you that outside and inside are really one thing, one hand as Creeley says in his poem. They're not two separate things, you know, isolated and apart from each other with this firewall between them. And then you realize that your thoughts and feelings are not as personal and as private as you thought they were. You begin to realize that you are actually thinking the world's thoughts that you are actually feeling the world's feelings. And somehow it feels like the world needs you to think and feel these things. And somehow the world knows that you are thinking and feeling these things that the world needs you to think and feel. 
When you think your thoughts and feelings are private and personal, they often seem painful and embarrassing. But when you realize it's not you, even your own thoughts and your own feelings are not actually about you, when you realize that, of course, it's true that everything about you is of necessity, shared and common, in the best sense of that word, then it feels pretty good to sit down in Zazen with everyone else as the world turns together with all of us. And that's why your inner world and your outer world influence each other so much. You make the world you live in. And the world you live in makes you. After all, you know, where do your thoughts and feelings come from? They're made by language and by your evolutionary genetic heritage, by your culture, by your family, by your experiences shared with others in a world. And so that's why as you grow and settle, so does your family and your world also grow and settle. And we all, we all know this already. We don't think about it, but we all already know this. Remember the literal world that you lived in when you were a little child. That's not the world you live in now. You've changed. And the whole world has changed. And that's why it is so important for you to practice. Not only for you, but for the whole world. Your practice is not just about you. It cannot ever be just about you. That's an illusion. We are all going somewhere uh, together. So here's a Zen story from the 17th century in China. A monastic once, once asked Master Ziyang, 30 blows, are these the actions of an ordinary person or an enlightened being? And Ziyang said, as long as the fellow isn't beaten to death, The monk then said to her in admiration, when you speak, uh, the clouds assemble. In the end, who is this great hero among women? Asking her, the master. And so Young said to him, each and every person has the sky over their head and the earth under their feet. The monk then gave a great shout, a great Zen shout, and Su Young said, So what's the point of recklessly shouting like that? <laughs> and the monk, uh, in response, bowed uh, respectfully. And then Su Young said to him, <laughs> <laughs> 
The Dharma doesn't rise up alone. It cannot emerge without reliance on the world. If I take up the challenge of speaking, I must surely borrow the light and the dark, the form and the emptiness of the mountains and hills and the great earth, the call of the magpies, the cry of the crows. The water flows and the flowers bloom, brilliantly preaching without ceasing. In this way, there is no restraint. No restraint. That's how we would like to live, inside and outside. Free of ourselves and our own compulsions, and free of the world and its sorrows and pressures fully participating in all that unfolds, good and bad, in a human lifetime among others on the earth, without restraint. That's how we would like to live, I think. And, and what is inside? And what is outside? If I see you uh, now, you know, with my eye, is that inside? Or is that outside? I see faces, but I don't see faces absent a background, light, walls, windows, floor. All of this is my experience of seeing right now. It's one picture in my heart right now. It fills my consciousness. this whole passionate world in this moment of seeing you right now. You are literally in my eye, in my consciousness, in my heart. So is that outside or inside? And when, on the other hand, I have a feeling of, of resentment or fear or anger, how could I possibly receive that feeling and feel it and know what it is if it weren't in some way outside of me so that I could receive it as an object? It must be not me. It's the only way that I could know it. Inside and outside. Impossible locations impossible possibilities. That's why, of course, I have to live in this world and do what I can. That's why, of course, I have to live in relation to others. Even if I decide to lock myself up in my house and never leave, or not doing that, I run around and go all over the place meeting people here and there. Either way, I'm in relation to others. And I have to build a life in the world somehow. And the world is going to participate in that. 
the world is going to say to me, this is good. I'll respond to that. This is not so good. I'm not going to respond to that. So all of that matters. Others' reactions, the world's reactions, really matter. And I try to make my way. But I don't pay over much attention to it. How is my heart inside? Can I forgive myself just for being the person that I am? Can I appreciate and really understand uh, with sympathy my human situation? Can I give myself full permission to suffer if that's what I need to do? Can I make a good effort to continue to practice and support others. If I can do those things, then I know it's going to be okay. Sometimes the world will take me up, and sometimes the world will set me down, and either way it'll be okay. Because the world can't push me around. And I can't be pushed around by myself and my own afflictive emotions. The only thing that I can do, and the only thing that I want to do with all my heart, is to go forward one step at a time. One more step. I'm going to live today. And then, if I'm lucky, one more day after that. So here's another story. This is an, a story from the time of the Buddha. Uh, from, it's a story of Padachara. Maybe you've heard this story before. In one day, Padachara lost her whole family through a series, not one event, but a series of events. First, her husband was bitten by a poisonous snake. And when she was distracted by this event, a hawk carried off her newborn child. And when she tried to rush after the hawk, her older child drowned in the river where she was sitting. She went home grief-stricken to her parents, but her mother and father were killed in that same day when their house collapsed in a landslide. Maybe when you hear this, it sounds like a, impossible. How could that happen? You know, people, all those things happen in one day. Maybe it didn't happen, you know. You never know old stories. They maybe make them up to make a point. Maybe it's not really true. Maybe it's just an exaggeration. But also, uh, maybe not. Maybe it actually happened. You could turn on the TV pretty much every day. And you can see, uh, usually women, not always women, grieving 
over the loss of their entire families. Gone in one day in a tsunami or a hurricane or a drone attack. We've just been seeing it in Gaza this last week. So actually, it happens. Well, uh, Patachara went insane with grief. She tore off her clothing, and she wandered around the countryside for days, you know, in circles. And finally, she stumbled onto the place where the Buddha was camped with his followers. And she was raving. So the monastics wanted to turn her away, but the Buddha said, no, no, let her come. And he came into the camp and looked at her, and he said, Sister, recover your presence of mind. And somehow, uh, with the Buddha's words, she did. And she looked at herself, and she realized that she was naked, and someone gave her a cloak, and she covered herself. And then she told the Buddha her story. And she begged him to help her. And he said to her, I cannot help you. For countless lives, your eyes have been red with tears for your loved ones. And your tears could fill the four oceans. But there's no place secure from suffering. Knowing this, a wise person walks the path of awakening. And these words eased her mind. And she joined the Buddha's group. She ordained as a monastic. She became a diligent practitioner. One day, as the text says, she saw deeply into the nature of impermanence. And right there, a vision of the Buddha appeared before her vividly, and the Buddha spoke and said to her, Padachara, all human beings die. It is better to see the truth of impermanence even for just a moment than to live for a hundred years and not know it. And on those words of the visionary Buddha, Padachara, fully awakened, opened up like a flower, and became uh, the greatest uh, woman teacher of her day, and known even down to this day, and lived a happy, long life. Uh, these stories that I've told you, both of them uh, are collected in a book that uh, hasn't yet been published, but it will be in 2013, called uh, Record of the Hidden Lamp, which is a collection of, uh, I think, 100 stories of uh, Buddhist women throughout the generations. It's being compiled and edited by uh, Sue Moon and Florence Kaplow from our Everyday Zen group. It's a wonderful book. I've been, as you see, talking about it and studying it. They gave me an advanced uh, copy. But for each of the stories, uh, which are usually brief, there's a commentary by a contemporary woman teacher. So the commentary to this story of Padachara is uh, written by Anna Douglas. 
and in her commentary, Anna recalls a time when she herself was suffering a lot. And she felt lonely because it seemed like nobody in her family or among her friends could understand her suffering or could really pay attention and listen to her when she wanted to tell them about it. So she felt you know, really upset about that and lonely. So she went to the spiritual teacher, Byron Katie, to seek guidance. And Byron Katie said to her, okay, you pretend that I'm your family and friends and you tell me the story. So Anna Douglas did. She launched into the story, told her the whole story. And uh, uh, she, she says, um, Katie listened patiently to the whole story. And when it was all over, Katie looked at her and said to her with great compassion, Anna, we don't really want to hear about this. <laughs> we have our own problems to worry about, and we just really don't want to hear about this. So Anna wrote, at first I was stunned. And then all of a sudden my mind cleared. The burden of wanting to be heard lifted and evaporated. Someone was finally telling me the truth. <laughs> and this is the effect of the truth. When we are told the truth, no matter how painful, it helps us settle down. We feel heard, seen. We feel sane. Don't get me wrong, I'm not recommending this approach when your friends want to tell you about their suffering. I'm just quoting you what Anna said. But it makes you think, you know. What is our suffering? What is our anguish? Is it inside or is it outside? Is it real or is it imagined? Do we make too much of it? Or maybe we don't make enough of it? Do I have more suffering than you do? Or maybe you have more suffering than me? Is suffering real? Or not real? Is some suffering real and other suffering less real? Some people suffer more than other people suffer? You shouldn't be suffering. The other guys should be suffering because their <laughs> suffering is real. So uh, I suppose when you come down to it, suffering is suffering because suffering is emotional. If it didn't bother you emotionally, then I guess you wouldn't call it suffering. So suffering must be emotional. But actually, it could be just the opposite. The suffering could be, I feel nothing, absolutely nothing. No emotion, that's the suffering. Or maybe the opposite, so much emotion that I'm raging around in circles and I don't even know my name anymore. And how does emotion appear anyway? Where does it come from? It seems to be actually in the body. And then the mind, in response to the body's emotional reaction, creates many thoughts. Emotion, in general, may be the body's response to something that happens in the environment outside of us. But outside is also inside. I mean, the world we're seeing, 
where we're living at is created, isn't it, by our perceptions, our senses, by our reactions, by our interpretations. The suffering of disrespect, the suffering of things not going as we believe they should, the suffering of injustice, the suffering of oppression. These sufferings must be based on our perceptions and on our deeply held views. And our thoughts and feelings rage in response to these perceived grievances. And we can nurse this rage even long after the causes of the grievance are gone. We can be as physically present with these things decades later, as we were in the beginning, sometimes even more. We can nurse our suffering for a lifetime if we want to. The suffering of physical pain, of weakness of the body, of lack of nourishment, of disease, and so on. If we have these sufferings, our mind is darkened, our viewpoint is discouraged, the whole world appears different. Being human is having a wide and a deep imagination. We can speak, we can think, we can imagine a future, so we suffer. That's the worst part, you know. You're suffering and you're thinking, it's always going to be like this. That's what's so terrible about the suffering. We can imagine a future. And so our liberation must involve a healing of our imagination. We can speak, we can think, we can imagine our life differently. Spiritual practice is an act of the imagination. It's a revisioning of our lives beginning in the body. It can't just be in our heads because our emotion is in our body and our heart. The suffering is in the body. Body, mind, heart, inside, outside. All of it is involved. They say, you know, the Buddha overcame sickness, old age, and death. That's what makes the Buddha a Buddha. He overcomes sickness, old age, and death. And yet, the text says the Buddha got sick. He got old and decrepit. And then he died. Well, what about that? This can only mean that for the Buddha, sickness was not sickness. Old age was non-old age, and death was non-death. And they call it, they don't call it death. They don't say the Buddha died. They say the Buddha entered Parinirvana. Although, to you and me, it looks like the Buddha died. So who are we really? And what are our lives, really? Let's not continue to be so fooled 
by our usual viewpoints, our habitual viewpoints. All the problems and challenges of a lifetime, all the hopes, all the wishes, we better think again. As real as thinking, wonders created by the possibility forms a period at the end of a sentence which began, it was, into a present, a presence, saying something as it goes. Well, thanks for listening. It's really uh, delightful for me to come here and see relatives and friends, old friends. You know, I, I always say I love this Brooklyn Zen community. It's a wonderful community. I said that one too many times, and now they get me to write the membership drive letter <laughs> every year. <laughs> But uh, I hope you're as aware as I am of uh, how uh, incredibly rare it is you could have a room like this to sit in, you know, here in Brooklyn. Not easy to come by. It takes a lot just to be able to sit here quietly. And it's a place of refuge. It's a place where if you sit down even once and pay attention to what happens in this room, you realize, oh, life could be really different than the way I think it is. So take care of yourselves. And let's all go forward and live one more day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.